Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And remember, you can find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, GoodPods, TuneIn Radio, Pandora. Wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, and on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1. I am also on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Follow me on social media. I always like to post pictures of organisms and updates as to when the next episode is coming out. And if you like the episode, go ahead and leave a review. Leave any feedback. And through social media also, leave any possible to uh, podcast topics. So any feedback, any suggestions, they are always welcome and appreciated. But definitely subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That's always good for the podcast. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you haven't listened to the latest episode of Let's Talk Micro, go ahead and do so. You know, it was a very good episode. It was a combination of historical data and scientific information about Yersinia pestis, which is the causative agent of the plague. It was a very interesting study. So in the study, DNA was obtained from seven individuals from the 14th century. And then there was a Yersinia pestis genome that was reconstructed with this information. And this points to a common ancestor before a diversification occurred. So this points to an early source of the second plague pandemic in central Eurasia. Great information, very educational. You know, we had uh, Philip Slavin from the University of Stirling in the UK and Maria Spirou from the University of Tübingen in Germany. So if you haven't checked it out, go ahead and do so. So the past few episodes, they have been, you know, conversational interview based with some amazing guests. So this one is just going to be me talking about an organism. So I was thinking, you know, as I was finishing up the Yersinia pestis episode, you know, with all this talk about Yersinia pestis and the plague, what better way that, you know, to learn about Yersinia than to talk about it in the podcast, including Yersinia pestis. So the next two episodes are going to be about Yersinia. So let's go ahead and start from the top. Yersinia belongs to the family Yersiniaceae, which is part of the order Enterobacteriales. Some of your most commonly seen gram-negative rods in the lab are part of, the or of this order. Remember when you heard the Enterobacteriaceae? So if you're a student, can you name some? Well, if you are thinking about E. coli, Klebsiella, Proteus, those are definitely some of them. And of course, there's another one that you have heard on the news that is known for being implicated in outbreaks, Salmonella. Definitely, even if you are not in the health field, in the microbiology field, in sciences, you have heard about Salmonella. Now you're watching the news, you hear about an outbreak. At some point in time, you have heard about vegetable contamination, peanut butter. And we are always told growing up to make sure your chicken is properly cooked and to properly disinfect areas when handling poultry. But Salmonella will be in its own separate episode another time. So let's go ahead and return to Yersinia. So I will be going over three different species. Yersinia pestis, Yersinia enterocolitica, 
and Yersinia pseudotuberculosis. And there are other species, but they lack virulence markers, and they are classified as non-pathogenic, like Yersinia Fredrickson. They are gram-negative rods, catalase-positive, oxidase-negative, and indole-variable. And I will talk more about that. But first, let's go over the habitat and diseases. So I'll start with Yersinia enterocolitica. So animals are a large reservoir of Yersinia enterocolitica. It is found in the gastrointestinal tract of dogs, cats, pigs, rats, and rodents. It is transmitted to humans via the fecal oral route. You know, like ingesting, con ingesting contaminated water that has feces from an infected animal. Also by ingestion of undercooked pork or unpasteurized milk products. It causes enterocolitis, which is an inflammation of the digestive tract and is characterized by fever, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Then we have Yersinia pseudotuberculosis, and it is very similar to Yersinia enterocolitica in reservoirs transmission and disease spectrum. It is found in rodents, dogs, sheep, and birds. So as far as you know how we acquire it, you know, it's similar to Yersinia enterocolitica. So you acquire it by ingesting contaminated food or water. Even though the infections are similar to Yersinia enterocolitica, they are less common, especially in the United States. And then we have Yersinia pestis, which is carried by wild rodents, squirrels, rats, and prairie dogs. Prairie dogs. It is transmitted to humans by ingesting contaminated tissues, also by flea vector and respiratory droplets from person to person with the pneumonic plague, and I will talk more about that. And an interesting fact mentioned in Bailey and Scott's microbiology, it's that Yersinia pestis is the only member of the Enterobacterales that is transmitted to humans via a flea vector. So the flea comes in contact with the infected animal and then in contact with the humans. Yersinia pestis is the causative agent of the plague, which as you know, it has been involved in several pandemics in the history of our world. The second one being the one discussed in the previous episode. The plague has three forms, bubonic, pneumonic, and septicemic. So before I go back to the plague and the three forms of plague, let's just circle back real quick to the Yersinia pestis and the flea vector. So it is definitely, it makes it unique in that fact, you know, typically the other organisms you can acquire them Right, you ingest it, you ingest contaminated food, contaminated water. But this one, a flea, you know, bites an infected animal and then it bites you and you can get it that way. So it's very interesting to, you know, find that out as you are learning about these organisms. And I always mention Bailey and Scott's because it's a great textbook, no affiliation to the podcast, but it's a great source of information where I get those technical terms. So it's a great textbook, so I recommend it. So let's go ahead and talk about the plague. So the bubonic plague is characterized by fevers, chills, headache, and swelling of groin and axilla lymph nodes. So this is what's called the buboes. This is the most common one and is very serious if left untreated. The pneumonic plague can be acquired in more than one way. It can be a complication of the bubonic plague, 
or by person-to-person transmission of respiratory droplets. And like I mentioned earlier about the, the respiratory droplets, it is the only form that can be spread this way. And it is the most serious form of the disease. It causes shortness of breath, pneumonia with a cough, and sometimes it is accompanied by a watery or bloody mucus. If those of you that watch TV, you know, it comes to mind there was a show, there's a show that's still on TV called NCIS, and this is way, it's been on for like 20 years. And in one of the episodes, it was an agent that he opened an envelope and he, like, you know, kind of like blew on it and, and like a little dust came out. And he ended up having a form of the plague. I don't know, that just came to mind while I'm doing this episode. And then you have the septicemic plague, which is when the organism is introduced into the system without it being first in the lymphatic system. Symptoms are fever, chills, shock, and sometimes bleeding into the skin or other organs. And on this episode, I will focus mostly on Yersinia enterocolitica and a little about pseudotuberculosis, but then Yersinia pestis will have its own episode as far as, you know, the implications of working it in the lab. So the, definitely the plague is a very serious disease. As you know, even if you are not involved in science and healthcare, you know, going through history books, that it has been involved in pandemics and several pandemics throughout the history of our planet, of our world. So there's the potential that it can be used as a bioterror agent. So there are definitely some protocols in place when you are suspecting this organism and things that you need to do. So that will be its own separate episode. So let's go ahead and talk about how we detect that in the lab. So gram stain is a gram negative rod. It can appear as single cells when staining from agar or in pairs when using liquid media. The rods are short. If you use a right stain, gimsa, or wason, you can see bipolar staining. And this is what is called the safety pin appearance. You might not see that with a gram stain. As far as media, it grows on your standard media. Blood agar chocolate, and McConkie. One thing that makes it different from other Enterobacterales is that Yersinia grows at a wider range of temperatures, from 4 degrees Celsius to 43 degrees. Those of you that work in the lab, you know, in microbiology, you have seen a, you have seen a CIN or SYN plate incubating at 25 degrees. And in which, you know, uh, benches you see this? Well, you know, if even though Stools nowadays are mostly run on molecular platforms, you know, PCR panels. You still have the old-fashioned, well, they call it the old-fashioned, but the regular stool culture, where you had all the sets of plates. And as we, as I get to talk about the enterobacterales, I will be talking more about this. But you used to have, you know, you had your McConkie, then you had your McConkie with sorbitol for the 0157 E. coli. You had your hectone for your Salmonella, Shigella. And then you had a Yersinia plate for Yersinia enterocolitica. Depending, I have seen these two ways. I have worked in places where it was done automatically with the stool culture. And then I have worked in places where they ordered the Yersinia with the stool culture. So the regular stool culture doesn't rule out Yersinia. So they, it was a separate order. 
But anyway, if you work in micro, you have seen that CIM plate incubating at 25 degrees. You can also see it when they bring a blood unit. So typically, there is this whole protocol you know, the patient is transfused blood and the patient has a reaction. So one of the protocols, you know, it's just, and for this, you know, I'm not a blood banker, but they bring the actual unit to the lab and then you go ahead and process it and you, you plate it on several media. And part of that is actually inoculating an initial CIM plate. And then you can eventually, you know, subculture again, and I will talk more about this in a little bit. But as part of that transfusion reaction workup culture, one of the organisms that you rule out is Yersinia. And it makes sense because it can grow at a wider range of temperatures, like I mentioned, for four from 4 degrees to 43. So typically, you know, not typically, your blood units are kept refrigerated until they are ready to be dispensed to the patient. So there's a possibility that that organism could be growing there. So as part of that protocol of that culture, you use a CIN plate, which I'll be talking more about that. And if you don't have a CIN plate or a SYN plate, some places might use a McConkie plate. However, the SYN plate provides better recovery, and I will talk about it. So according to the ASM Manual of Clinical Microbiology, it is recommended to incubate Yersinia enterocolitica and pseudotuberculosis at 25 degrees, so a place that you're trying to rule it out, due to the instability of the virulence plasmid at a higher temperature. Yersinia grows slower than other enterobacteriales, and it can take up to 48 hours to grow. What do the colonies look like? Well, they are non-fermenting in McConkie. For biochemicals, they are catalase positive, oxidase negative, and indole variable. And those of you that work in micro or are studying know that enterobacteriales are oxidase negative. Yersinia enterocolitica and pseudotuberculosis are positive for urea and motility, whereas Yersinia pestis is not. As far as PCR panels, the BioFire GI panel and the BDMAX extended enteric bacterial panel, they can detect Yersinia enterocolitica. And then according to the ASM Manual of Clinical Microbiology, there has been cross-reactivity with other Yersinia species on the BioFire panel. So I've been mentioning CIN agar or SIN, and I'm, for now on I'm just going to say SIN, and you know that it's CIN. So let's go ahead and talk about it. So SIN stands for Cephsulodin Irgosan Novobiosin. This is a selective and differential medium for the isolation of Yersinia enterocolitica. I always like to talk about the ingredients of the media. So this has peptones, which provides amino acids and nitrogen, and yeast extract, which provides vitamins. You have definitely heard about plates having you know, the yeast extract, like your, you know, like your anaerobic media, that it has the yeast extract, which provides those vitamins. As far as the selective agents, it has crystal violet, deoxycholate, novobiosin, cephsulodin, and irgesin. This inhibit, inhibit gram-positive organisms along with some gram-negative rods, like E. coli, 
Klebsiella, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. The differential portion is mantle. Colonies that ferment mantle produce a red color in the center, and this is due to the absorption of a neutral red dye. And this is what's called a bullseye. So when you're going through textbooks, if you're getting tested on your on your boards for like lab people, lab personnel, like your ASCP, you start hearing those terms, bullseye, safety pin, and you start thinking about Yersinia. So the bullseye is a colorless border with a red center. So very simple procedure with this media, just like any other media. Now you plate it, you streak it, and then for this one, you incubate it at 25 degrees for 24 to 48 hours. And you don't want to wait 48 hours to examine your plates. And this is something, especially with, with students or new techs, you're thinking maybe you read it at 48 hours. So what you do is at 24, you examine it, 24 hours, and then you incubate it for an additional 24 hours. And your senior enterocolitica will exhibit this type of colonies after 24 to 48 hours of incubation. And like I mentioned, this is typically done with a stool culture or with a blood unit. And with the blood unit, and I just I talked about this a little bit earlier, but now I'm going to build up on it. You typically inoculate an initial sin plate and you go through that whole 48 hour process where you examine it at 24, re-incubate, then 24 hours later, you, you examine it again. So then in addition to this, you perform a cold enrichment. Here, you add your specimen to phosphate buffer saline and incubate it at four degrees. You keep this saline, you know, this buffer saline slash blood or sample. You keep it for 21 days. And every seven days, you subculture to a synagar plate and go through the 48-hour process. So now that you know about Synagar, or CIN, let's go ahead and talk about Cromagar Yersinia. And this one I haven't worked with. It is intended for the detection and differentiation of pathogenic Yersinia enterocolitica. Acceptable sources are swabs, rectal swabs, and stools. So you play your agar and incubate it at 30 degrees for 36 to 48 hours. Your pathogenic strains, they show a mauve color. Non-pathogenic strains show as a metallic blue or they are inhibited as other enterobacteriales. And according to the ASM manual, it is as sensitive as synagar to detect Yersinia enterocolitica. And of course, for this, final identification needs to be performed by another method, such as Vitek or Molditov. So with all this information, let's go back and put it all together. So we have three species of Yersinia that are considered pathogenic. We have Enterocolitica, Pseudotuberculosis, and Yersinia pestis. Pseudotuberculosis, we don't see it as much, especially in the United States. And Yersinia, you acquire by you know, ingesting contaminated food or water, unpasteurized milk products, and your senior pestis, you can, uh, you know, it has a flea vector, where the flea, you know, bites the infected animal, then it bites you, and it makes it unique as far as the enterobacteriales go. As far as diseases, so your senior enterocolitica, 
causes enterocolitis, and then diseases of, of Yersinia pseudotuberculosis, they're similar to enterocolitica, but however, less common. And then Yersinia pestis, that causes the plague, and you have three forms, bubonic, with the buboes, and then you have pneumonic plague, which can be a complication of the bubonic plague, and it's the only one that can be transmitted via respiratory droplets, and then you have septicemic plague. And then we went over two different types of agar that can be used to detect Yersinia enterocolitica. Syn agar, which you know you incubate at 25 degrees, and it, the plate looks very similar to a McConkie. So when you are plating, always make sure that you look at the media that you have. And then you have Yersinia chrom agar, which this one you know is, is chromogenic. So if it detects pathogenic Yersinia enterocolitica, you know, you will see a mauve color. So with the scramogenic agar, you know, you always, the intended colonies, they have a specific color that you are looking for. And then due to, due to the severity of, of your senia pestis and the fact that it can potentially be used as a bioterror agent, about how quickly it can be transmitted, about the spectrum of disease, I will be covering it in the next episode. Um, you know, with this organism, certain protocols need to be followed in the lab if you suspect it. Like I mentioned, it's a very serious organism. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy learning about Yersinia. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. Definitely stay tuned for the next episode where I'll be going over Yersinia pestis. As I always say, continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. We do such great work. So, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time, bye.